Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr. Today I'm welcoming back Thomas J. Ord. Thomas J. Ord, PhD, is a theologian, philosopher, and scholar of multidisciplinary studies. Ord directs the Center for Open and Relational Theology and Doctoral Students at Northwind Theological Seminary. He is an award-winning author and has written or edited more than 25 books. A gifted speaker, Ord lectures at universities, conferences, churches, and institutions. He is known for his contributions to research on love, science, and religion, open and relational theology, the problem of suffering, and the implications of freedom for transformational relationships. Let's welcome Tom to the show again. All right, welcome to the show, Tom. Thanks for being here. Uh, For those just listening for the first time, perhaps, Tom has been on the show before, so I encourage you, if you'd like to hear his whole background and bio uh, and my usual opening questions, go back and listen to his previous episode. I'll have that in the show notes. Uh, But Tom, one of the things I really enjoy following you on social media is not just your great theological perspectives, but also your outdoor photography. So share a little bit about what uh, brings you joy about that and what you uh, find meaningful there. Yeah, there's something really therapeutic, for me at least, about getting out into nature with a camera, hiking. I do it probably once a week and um, and then post the photographs that I like on social media. But I fulfilled a lifelong goal last, uh, I guess it was the end of November. I photographed a mountain lion. I was in the Owyhees of Idaho. I came upon a... Uh, uh, a female and two cubs and they kind of disappeared. I had the wrong camera or lens on my camera, switched lenses in time to get about six or eight shots of the female and pretty proud of that. Pretty thrilled. The interesting thing about photography, and you could probably speak to this a lot better than I could, Tom, is the importance of lighting. Right. How do you, I mean, I don't, how do you master that? How do you get that? Is that just practice? What is that about? A lot of it's practice, um, yeah, just being out there a lot, making photographs, but also looking at photographs and asking yourself, how did they make that, or what were the conditions that made this photograph interesting? So um, it's not just repetition; it's also studying what you think is a great photograph. But um, I got a book that I'm writing on theology and photography, so maybe I'll hmm. I'll address that question in in the book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I remember what's a uh, shot of yours, some of yours that comes to mind is like some old barn photos, where it's just kind of amazing to me, the level of detail, you know, without, perhaps you have included shadows there, but really the, the crispness of the photos, I think is always good photography, I think is so amazing. Oh, thanks. When I give, I oftentimes give uh, lectures on photography and theology, and usually near the end of the lecture, after I've shown them all kinds of different kinds of photographs, and I reveal, I have my big reveal, Mm -hmm. which is that uh, I'm red-green colorblind. Uh, 
which oh, means wow. that uh, I see colors differently than you know the world isn't black and white for me, but mm-hmm. I see colors differently, and I suspect that affects the way I, I think about light as well. Wow, wow, that's interesting. Well, as much as uh, I'm sure you could talk about photography for 30 or 40 minutes, uh, we did jump on this to agree to talk about your book. So this is a little special episode talking about a new book Tom has coming out called Pluriform Love. So I guess first give a little, you know, what inspired the book, what brought it about, and then what you're hoping to accomplish with the book. Yeah, my... My wife asked me what the new book is about. I told her what it was, and she said, another book on love? (laughs) (laughs) Because uh, that word love appears in the title or subtitle of a lot of my books. I just just keep finding myself going back to that topic, in part because it's so important to me personally, to what it means to be a believer in God and a Christian, uh, and in part because I think... There are tons of bad views of love, not only kind of in popular Christianity, but the majority of Christian theologians, I think, suck when it comes to being theologians of love. Wow. And so um, that's part of what this book does is criticize what I think are bad views of love and then offer alternatives that I think are more helpful. Mm hmm. Well, one of the things that I think was interesting, and you're kind of alluding to it right there, is the confusion or disagreements around love in the Bible and within Christianity. So can you can you talk around some of those? Yeah, there's so many. I'll try to limit myself. Uh, let me I'll, – I'll limit myself to three, okay? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, there's some Christians, including some sophisticated theologians, who have such a horrible view of humans that thinking we're totally depraved, we have nothing good about us, there's nothing of value. So the only way God can love us is for God to look past all our crap and love us in spite of all our sin, and God gets nothing out of the uh, relationship. Yeah, I think that's just wrong biblically, wrong in our everyday experience. And so I think when it comes to divine love, God's love is not only giving, self-sacrificial, loving us in spite of sin, but it's also loving us because of our real value. It's also Mm. receiving. Mm -hmm. It's also a kind of uh, an appreciation kind of love. So that's that's one issue. Another is that um, some theologians here, I'm going to pick on Augustine as a good example. Yeah, let's pick on him. (laughs) (laughs) He thinks God loves, but God's love is really not about promoting Mm well-being. Love, in his view, is really about appreciating and desiring what is valuable. Hmm. And then Augustine says, well, God is supremely valuable, and God is really smart. God's not going to be sidetracked on valuing or desiring what is less than optimally valuable. So God only desires God's self. God only loves God's self. Mm -hmm. And uh, that view surprisingly continues to dominate, especially uh, in Catholic and evangelical theologies today. The, The idea being God only truly loves God's self 
And we ought to love God in the sense of desiring God. But when it comes to loving ourselves and loving our neighbors, well, we don't really love them for their own sakes. We only just love them as a means to loving God. Yeah. Uh, so there's two. Let me do a third one. Let's make this third one really broad. Yeah. There was a, some research that came out in like, in like 2014, 2015, something like that, on how Americans think about God. Mm-hmm. And they kind of narrowed it down to four big categories, and those categories had diversity. But one of the things they found is that 85% of Americans think God is loving. Hmm. And I have yet to come across a sophisticated theologian who thinks God is not loving. I mean, mm-hmm. just about everybody thinks love is somehow related to God. But then when these sophisticated theologians or just everyday people sort of explain what God's love is like, God ends up being a monster. Hmm. God yeah. ends up being... God's love sends people to hell forever. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. God's love is the kind of love that allows evil in the world, even though, um, uh, according to most theologies, God could just stop it if God wanted to. Mm-hmm. And so the way people think about love just makes no sense to me in my everyday experience. And I think makes little sense to the majority of the biblical witness. Yes, I know there's some biblical passages that portray God as unloving. I admit that's there. But the the majority of witness of Scripture and the witness of Jesus, I think, portrays a God of perfect love. But these kind of, not only sort of everyday Christian views of love, but really sophisticated theological views don't match that particular vision very well. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. You know, I was kind of, uh, my brain lit up when you mentioned the thing about the bad views on love. Um, Mm. Because I think one of those bad views on love that is so often the case in mainstream Christianity is this, you know, loving people so that you can share the gospel with them or love them <laughs> to, to, to get something else. And yeah. you talk about the ideal of loving people as ends in themselves. Mm. Yeah. It means that when I love someone, I'm not doing that because I want them to get on my team mm-hmm. or I want them to buy my product it means that I'm asking myself what is really good for them. One of the, the, the important issues here, though, is that when we ask what it means to love someone for their own sake, we need to be careful to actually listen to what they think they need. Yeah. Like yeah. so often Christians come and impose their particular perspective on uh, what, you know, what love means. And, and here's a, an example of something I'm personally going through in my own life right now. Uh, there is a leader in my denomination who has a different view on LGBTQ issues than I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm an affirming, accepting people. I think Christians can be, uh, you know, LGBTQ and be faithful, etc. cetera. Uh, and I say, well, at the heart of my rationale for this is my understanding of love. 
that I want the well-being of others yeah. and that, um, you know, an LGBTQ person can experience deep well-being in who they are and their activities. Well, my, my uh, debate partner, he wants to say he's trying to be loving too. Yeah, yeah. But what he's saying is, but I have the truth that, you know, gay sex is bad and the since it's bad and i have that truth i'm now going to impose that on lgbtq people rather than listening to them hearing what their experience is really like and then responding in that way so loving for the sake of others is not simply just acting for what you think is in their best interest it's also listening to who they are and what they think they really need as part of the process you know, it reminds me of, I'm sure you're familiar with Jared Baez, right? He had the book. Yeah. What was his book? Something. Um, yeah. Love. It was love related to. Oh, I, blanking I should it. know it. It's all right. <laughs> um, folks, recommend the book. It's somewhere in one of my stack of books here in my office. Um, yeah. But his point, he had a similar point in his office, or excuse me, in his book about how Christians will often say, oh, I'm just speaking the truth in love. Oh, love matters yeah. more. That was the point. That That's was the it. title. Yeah. Love matters more. Um, so, it's, you know, because he was, he was making the point that this speaking, oh, I'm just speaking the truth in love. I'm just telling you you're a sinner going to hell. I'm doing it because I love you. Yeah. Yeah, and it ends up coming across as forcing my ideas down your throat, even though, you know, they're not really for your best interest. And, and, and I think Jared would agree that people who say that typically have good motives. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I'm not saying, you know, these people are bad people, fundamentally, right. you know, mean or something. They got good motives. Uh, but they don't understand that what it means to love is to receive from others, including receiving uh, what's going to be in their best interest. Um, suppose I suppose I am a, a lot younger than I am and, and not yet married and I'm in a, a dating sort of situation. Mm-hmm. And I see a girl I like and I decide, um, you know, I'm going to. I'm going to show my affection in a very traditional way. I'm going to send flowers to her. Suppose I send a dozen roses. Mm-hmm. She gets the flowers, and it turns out she's allergic to roses. <laughs> now, my intentions were good. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make her day, but it turns out I didn't know her well enough to know that roses just aren't her thing. It makes her, her, it decreases her well-being. Yeah. And I think that's the way it is a lot of time with Christians. They think they're acting for the good of others, but they don't really take the time to think about how it's being received and what is truly good for the other. Yeah, that's a good example. You know, I, I think this next point I want to bring up, I think it ties into your point about this idea that God is the source of love, and this idea that many Christians hold that God is the only, well, I'm saying this wrong. We can only love if we're connected to God. I'm kind of butchering this statement, but I think you get what I'm saying. There's this idea yeah. within Christianity, some streams of Christianity, that the only way we can truly love is if we're truly connected to to God, at least in, in how that stream of Christianity defines being connected to God. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's some people who think something like this. Well, we're rotten sinners. Mm -hmm. We can't love because we're crap. Right. But 
God can kind of take us and use us as robots. Right, you know, right. God can take over my life, do something good for others. I get no credit here because it was God just using me. And I'm totally against that view. I think we have real agency, real responsiveness to God. Our actions really contribute for good or ill to the world. Now, I'm not a person who thinks that God is somewhere out there in outer space. We're on planet Earth, and we just have to basically pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. And it's, you know, if it's to be, it's up to me. We mm-hmm. just got to work hard. Right. I really do think God influences us moment by moment, empowers us to love, inspires us to love. You know, I think we, I think the, the Apostle John is right when he says we love because God first loved us. So we're not independent in that sense. We rely upon God's love and power, but we're also not robots. Yeah, I think that's one of the things my dog is, for some reason, very much wanting attention right now. (laughs) I think that's one of the things I really appreciate about your theology and the broader kind of open relational uh, theological perspectives is, I think perhaps is a caricature, but I think one could say about liberal theology historically is it's very much like a like you said hey it's up to us we got to yeah. make it happen uh and god just kind of going to be like a cheerleader i don't know from a distance yeah yeah um so i kind of appreciate it's one of the things i appreciate about the open relational theological perspectives it's it's a collaboration it's a team approach definitely yes that's a great way to put it yeah, yeah. i well, sometimes think about there's an illustration i like that I think portrays well an open and relational perspective here. And it contrasts between Augustine's view of God's power and a person who is Augustine's critic named Pelagius. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Imagine life is a dance and God is on one side of the dance floor and we're on the others. In an Augustinian framework, God comes all the way across the dance floor and says, Lauren, you must dance with me. And then you get out on the floor and you're basically a robot. Mm -hmm. God is controlling everything. This second view, we'll call it a Pelagian one, even though we don't know Pelagius' views perfectly. But anyway, it's basically God on the other side of the dance floor saying, you know, Lauren, if you take a step toward me, I'll take a step toward you. Mm -hmm. If you try really hard, well, I'll come closer. And basically, it's on your shoulders to make this dance a reality. The open and relational perspective says God comes all the way across the dance floor to us, holds out a hand and says, will you dance with me? Hmm. And we have free decisions. And when the dance begins, we still have free decisions. We can cooperate, collaborate and partner with the great dancer, or we can get out there and, you know, flail around in a mosh pit if we want to. Um, We always have that freedom, but God always invites, empowers, and inspires our love. Yeah, that's so beautiful. You mentioned Augustine, and I feel like we're just going to take turns here, kind of throwing him under the bus. Uh, (laughs) Forgive, you know, apologies to my friends who are big Augustinian fans, but I think a lot of what we're talking about really gets back, at least in kind of our, our perceived negative perceptions of love and ideas of love really gets back to Augustinian theology. Mm -hmm. Um, So 
you know, I don't remember if the, the word he used was rotten scoundrels or whatever. You know, human beings are rotten scoundrels who God yeah. just, you know, uses as robots to love. But, you know, talk more about why you reject that ideal of, you know, human beings is inherently corrupted where God needs nothing from us. And, and it, from my perspective, I've heard this before, perhaps you have, like humans really only exist to bring God glory. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a very common claim in a more reformed or Calvinist mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. tradition that, you know, our ultimate purpose is to bring God glory, which is a really ironic claim because that same tradition typically says God is not relational, totally unaffected by us. <laughs> so on the one hand, they're saying we can't do anything to contribute to God's experience. And yet they're saying our purpose is to experience contribute to God's experience makes no sense um, oh now I forgot what I was going to say in response to your question can you can you ask your question again yeah Augustine <laughs> why you reject Augustine's oh, yeah. ideals yeah I mean this is going to make me sound like a really traditional Christian but I reject Augustine because I really like the majority of what the Bible says hmm. I, hmm. I mean I just think reading the Bible portrays creatures in general and humans in particular as real partners with God, able to please God or disappoint God in how we treat each other or other people and the planet, um, and the kind of individuals God actually desires to have a relationship with, wants to cooperate with, collaborate with. Uh, so for me, it, it's fundamentally a biblical vision to think that we have real value. Mm. I mean, right there at the start of the Bible, God creates and keeps saying left and right, it's good, it's good, it's very good. There's goodness all over the place. And while I think there's real sin in the world, I think we are intrinsically valuable. God creates us as such, and God appreciates and enjoys us as such. So, for me, the old claim about, you know, even though we are, we have sinned, we still have real value. That's just gold-fashioned biblical theology. Hmm. You know, Tom, one of the things rattling around in my head right now for some reason, even when I was reading your book and during this conversation, I keep thinking about, was it Jonathan Whitfield, Wakefield? Who's the, the sinners in the hand of an angry God? Jonathan Edwards. Thank you, yeah. Jonathan Edwards. Um, yeah. You know, his message, and I feel like that kind of broader view of like just God not being able to stand humanity was really kind of the moder the theme of Jonathan Edwards' time period. Yeah. And now I feel like kind of the broader theme of our time period we're in now is that God loves us. I'm just curious. Mm. Maybe this is maybe this is out of bounds. I'm asking you something perhaps you haven't researched, but I'm just curious if you've given thought to why there's been that dramatic shift, I think, from 200 years ago of, like, you know, sinners in the hand of an angry God to most messages, I think, in churches revolving around God's love, even if yeah. we have different tweaks about how we interpret it. There's a lot of answers, but I'm going to point to the one I think is probably not talked about enough and more influential than most people realize the idea that God is pure and can't be in the presence of horrible sinners like us mm -hmm. 
uh, is tied heavily to a particular philosophical perspective we often call Platonic or Neoplatonic thought mm. that mm-hmm. says mm-hmm. that um, what really matters are the pure and perfect forms out there. That's what God is. And um, God, again, is unaffected by what we do. And there has been a major shift, not only in Western thought, but I think uh, across the world, philosophically, scientifically, and sociologically, to a view of relationality, to a view of events and moments and experience. I think that shift actually better represents the majority witness of Scripture. (laughs) So it's not like, you know, we've just gone off the rails and left all of our heritage behind. In many ways, it's a return to a kind of way of thinking about reality that fits so much better with the Bible. Now, I'm not claiming, you know, the Bible affirms evolution or I'm not making those drastic claims, but sort of a general big picture the relational themes of Scripture fit so nicely with the relational themes today. And the love that so many of us think is at the heart of what it means to be a truly good human or truly good creature, that's also, I think, preached strongly in the biblical message. So I think it's a shift in worldview or philosophical outlook that actually brings us closer to general themes in the Bible. Yeah, that's a good point because that kind of systems approach has really just dominated all aspects, mm. I think, uh, of society in, I think, positive ways. Uh, but yeah. certainly we see it in theology, science, research, um, sociology, uh, for sure. Um, one of the things, another thing I'm curious about is you assert that God's love isn't different than human love. So, how do we avoid how does how does this this approach avoid what's the word uh, you know making god out of our own image type thing yeah and yeah that's a good question so the claim is that the definition of what love is applies both to god and to us hmm. so i think to love is to act intentionally in relational response response to others including god to promote well-being, overall well-being. I think that definition applies to what we should call love in creatures and love from the Creator. Now, I think there are differences in the scope of God's love. God is able to love everyone all the time because God's omnipresent. You and I just aren't omnipresent, so we can't do that. Mm -hmm. I think Love is God's nature, whereas you and I don't have an eternal nature of love. We sometimes do things that are unloving, but God consistently does loving things. So, and there's other differences. So the definition is the same for God's love and ours, but the extent, the mode, the reliability, all that sort of stuff is different between God and us. Does this make God in our image? I don't think so. I think what it does is really just provide a coherent theology. <laughs> it, it allows us not just to, to it allows us to avoid appealing to mystery left and right. Besides, there's got to be some similarities between creator and creation, yeah. especially between God and us, if we're created in God's image. Right. Um, right. So, 
I want to avoid two extremes. One extreme says God is entirely like, different from us. In, we're not like God in any sense whatsoever. And the other extreme says, you know, God's just basically like us, just a bigger body or something like that. I want to avoid two, both those extremes and rest somewhere between them. Yeah, it reminds me of, I think you use these terms in the book somewhere, of the imminence and transcendence traditional yes. approaches. There's some people who would kind of argue just for an almost purely transcendent, separate God. Yeah. And then, like you say, there's some people who would uh, argue for a purely imminent God who's, like you said... Um, yeah, I think that's a that's a fair point. That's a good point of finding the balance between those two. And I think you you do, if I remember correctly, in the book you kind of do, um, what's the word I'm trying to say? You do kind of draw uh, perspectives on how God behaves in both of those ways, right? Right. Yeah, I have a section I call the seven analogies of love, mm-hmm. and each section says, well, God is like us in these ways, but different in these ways, and I just sort of march through those. Yeah. I want to ask, use the word omnipresent, and mm-hmm. I know you've written a lot about the omnipotence, the omnipotence of God, Yeah. Uh, and many, many progressive Christians and liberal Christians have struggled with the, the omni-God, the omnipresent, yeah. omnipotent, omni-sapient. Um, yeah use an interesting word, which I don't think I have seen before, and you might need to say it for me so I get it right. Yeah, I use the word omnipotent, and you haven't seen it before because I made it up. Okay. Well, (laughs) spell it for our listeners. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. um, It's an alternative to the word omnipotent. Omnipotent has traditionally meant God is Mm all-powerful. But uh, if you think we have freedom and God doesn't control everything, well, then you don't think God is omnipotent in the sense of controlling everything. If you think God can't do things that are illogical, God can't make 2 plus 2 equal 387, Mm -hmm. well, then omnipotence can't mean that. If you think, like biblical writers, that God can't tell a lie, God can't grow tired, God can't be tempted— then you're going to say there's some things God can't do because to do them, God would just have to deny God's self. And so what happens in at least scholarly discussions, people qualify that word omnipotent so much so that at the end of the day, it doesn't really match with what everyone else uses by the word. Yeah. Besides, if God has the kind of controlling power that so many people think God has, then that whole evil stuff that we've talked about comes roaring back. You wonder why a controlling God doesn't prevent evil. So I coined a new word. I used the prefix, the Latin prefix, ami, A-M-I, in which we find words like amicable, amiable, amigo, a love kind of prefix, and the word potent, by which we have the word power, Mm -hmm. and said, God's power is fundamentally the power of love. Hmm. God's not a weakling. God not watching us from outer space. God's really active and powerfully present in the world, but God is never controlling and always loving because love comes first in God. That's really cool. That's really cool. I like that. I like that a lot. No, thanks. Yeah. I'm just start using that. I'm Pronounce it again for me, amipotent? Amipotent. Amipotent. Amipotent is how I say it. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'll have to work on that. Well, you talked about the problem of evil, and again, I think that's something humans will continue to wrestle with probably until we cease to exist. Um, yeah. How do you think, uh, for, and maybe first explain this term, kenotic love helps with the problem of evil? Yeah, there's uh, kenosis is a word in Greek that's found in several biblical passages, but most famous for Philippians chapter 2, mm-hmm. in which it's part of a song or a love hymn. And it says something like, Jesus doesn't consider equality with God something to be clung to, but kenosis, self-gives, self-empties. And a lot of theologians have said, well, that's a really good way to think about who God is. God is a a lover who self-gives and others empowers. Um, This can help us, I think, think about human freedom, creaturely agency. I add the word essential to kenosis and say that God must self-give, must others empower, and therefore can't control others. God must do this because it's God's nature to do this. Mm -hmm. And this helps to overcome some of the big questions of evil because then it says, well, God isn't choosing to allow evil or God isn't deciding sometimes to uh, give freedom and agency and other times not. It's saying, no, God's love necessarily gives agency, self-organization, freedom to creation. And that's a key piece to solving the the questions of evil. Yeah, that's good. Well, let me ask uh, one, maybe two more questions here. Uh, talk Great. about what you see as the reign of love. Yeah, yeah. I, I invented that language also because I wanted an alternative to the kingdom of God or mm-hmm. the kingdom of heaven mm-hmm. uh, because kingdom sounds a little too authoritative to me. Mm-hmm. Some people will take out the G and talk about the kingdom as just the family, and I've got no problem with that. But I want to, to talk about, since I think love is at the heart of who God is and what God does, and I think God's love is powerful, I wanted to try to talk about a vision in which, in some way, love can really reign, R-E-I-G-N, reign over all all of creation in not a controlling way, obviously, not an oppressive way because that's not love, but in a way in which love is um, expressed by everyone and all creatures. We're obviously not at that place right now, but I think that's the vision that Jesus has when he talks about uh, a kind of existence in which love is at the center of not only how God acts, I think that's always going to be the case, but becomes the focus and center of how you and I and all creatures act. Cool. Well, there's a lot more I feel like we could talk about, but I want to save stuff for folks to actually read the book. (laughs) Great. So I don't know if you want to give this answer, perhaps, or maybe just do a teaser for why folks should buy the book and read the book. But the, the title, Pluriform Love, I don't know if you want to describe it or give a little teaser, but choose to answer it how you will, and then we'll take a quick break. Great. Yeah, Pluriform Love is my way of saying there are many forms of love, not just one. Love is not just self-sacrificial. Love is not just friendship. 
There are many ways to express love in the world. But once you say there are many ways to express love, then you have to have some understanding of what love is. So what, and I've given my little definition of what that is. So pluriform love makes the claim that the meaning of love is uniform. There's one meaning for love. Mm -hmm. But the forms or expressions of love, those are multifaceted. Those are pluriform. And not only does that make sense of how we live our lives, but there's really strong biblical evidence for pluriform love. Yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Well, let's take a quick break, and uh, we'll come back and wrap this up. All right, we're back with Thomas J. Ord. And, Tom, thanks so much for the time and conversation. Tell our listeners where they can get a copy of the book and uh, where they can connect with you. Yeah, thanks so much for the opportunity for the conversation, Lauren. I always enjoy chatting with you. Uh, this book will be available on you know online booksellers, Amazon, lots of other places, Barnes and Noble. Um, it should come out the end of February, about the 25th, in paperback, hardback, ebook, and audio, all at once. Um, and folks can find that in whatever their favorite online bookseller is. You can contact me at my website, which is my full name, Thomas J J A Y Ord O O R D dot com, uh, or the Center for Open and Relational Theology, and that website is the letter C, the number four, the letters O R T dot com. I'm also a person who um, does my best, and I think does a pretty good job of responding to questions on social media, Facebook, Twitter, usually the places I'm at most, uh, or email. So folks should feel free to send me their questions or thoughts. Great. Um, this is purely off the cuff now. Uh, Tom, give me a little, give our listeners and me a little bit about the Center for Open Relational Theology. Yeah, the Center for Open and Relational Theology is a organization that brings together lots of diverse people under this big set of ideas that God is relational and God is open. And people under that umbrella, some of them identify as process theologians, some as Trinitarian theologians or um, uh, openness theologians. We have some evangelical theologians who identify as that, even uh, Jewish and Muslim theologians who are open and relational. Mm. But it's a way to bring together these people who share this common vision mm -hmm. and then promote those ideas in various forms, videos, podcasts, books, conferences. Uh, I've got an an online conference coming up on February uh, 19th that explores 10 recent books in open and relational thought. There's a, a full week conference July 4 through 8 uh, at Grand Targhee Resort in Wyoming that explores open and relational thought. So it's a really uh, budding, building movement of people who think this vision of God makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. the uh, The July conference in Wyoming, I'm sure, will be a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, just a great location. Wyoming is beautiful. It might be kind of challenging to get to, perhaps. I don't know. Do folks fly into Cheyenne? Where do they fly into? Uh, they fly into Jackson, Jackson, and it's an hour drive from Jackson. Wow. So 
Uh, it's beautiful place. It's nestled right between Teton National Park and Yellowstone. It's perfect to bring your family or partner to do some national park visiting mm-hmm. also. Yeah, that's a good sell there. That's a good sell right there, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> well, give the full title of the book and uh, one more time for our listeners. Great. The title is Pluriform Love. The subtitle is An Open and Relational Theology of Well-Being. Great. Well, thanks for listening. And Tom, thanks for being a part of this. Encourage our listeners to check out the book and uh, check out Tom's work. Tom, thanks so much for your time. Uh, May God's peace be with you. And with you. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romaglevitt. Thanks, and go in peace. Thanks.